It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Sam Snelling. This is a brand new episode of Dive Cuts. We are on season four, episode twenty. It is uh, Missouri basketball season. The Missouri Tigers are, uh, I guess, back on the horse after a, a rough three-game stretch. With me, as always, to talk about it is Matthew J. Harris over there in Indianapolis. Matt, how are things in Indy? Oh, things are fine. We're finally able to uh, finally able to get a run in today. That was magical. I was going stir crazy after a week of not being able to get um, my post work uh, three or five miles in. So that was nice today. Uh, the temps were in the 40s. Uh, my wife made a fantastic uh, meat, pancetta meatball uh, uh, pasta recipe for dinner. Um, and I also enjoyed uh, some of Redemption's weeded uh, bourbon. Uh, I cracked open a bottle that my father-in-law bought for me. And it's... Uh, not a bad little sipper, so it's it's been a pretty good day over here. I'm uh, currently sipping on my my first drink of the night. Um, it's a little uh, Russell's Reserve um, store pick, so uh, always a good good pickup. Um, get a nice little. I think those are like 110 proof, so it's 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 kind of like for me that sweet spot of. Uh, of, of proof, which I, I like like 105 to like 120. Um, once you kind of get over 120, then 
like you a little more methanol well yeah like like even and you know like you know i love you know my my stag stag jr uh and elijah craig barrel proof but those require uh ice like there's there's no getting around no drinking those and and, you know i i always like to kind of have a little sip neat just kind of set my palate before i put some ice in it and uh man those are those like just evaporate the second they they get inside your mouth and so yeah so uh i like i like things because i think once you kind of get into that like 105 to 120 range then you really only need one cube and it just sort of opens everything up and makes it really nice um but uh, you know like uh, do do people actually like us talking about whiskey because i feel like we talk about whiskey at least every other pod at least if not every pod I mean, I'm fine stopping now. We don't have to, I, we don't have to just, prolong the discussion. I really like it. Like, whiskey's interesting to talk about. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, I'm sure uh, when uh, it is not the season and there are not relevant things to, to talk about on the basketball floor, maybe they maybe they find it as a nice little break. But uh, right now, they might be showing up if they still show up. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am willing to kind of go out on a limb that the number of people that sort of tune out when we start talking about whiskey is, is probably a lot higher than those uh, whose ears become peaked when we uh, when we, we go in on the booze talk. Um, uh, I'm sure. But we uh, are... But, hey, maybe, maybe they wanted it a couple <laughs> weeks ago when things were going poorly. Maybe we just mistimed the drinking advice. Maybe we're a little bit uh, late in dispensing it. Yeah, you know, uh, you get a little, uh, little, uh, you know, break from uh, from Jeremiah Tillman, who is having a kind of an all SEC level uh, year on the production level, and he he has to uh, take a leave of absence. And uh, and Missouri's sort of season looked like it was it was teetering until they got back. And and uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I thought that. Kind of going into that Georgia game, I thought Missouri could beat Georgia without Jeremiah Tillman. Um, I th- and I think that it, in retrospect, I think they would have beaten Georgia with Tillman. I thought the element that he brings around the rim would have made uh, Georgia's life a lot more difficult around the basket um, and would have given Missouri just enough of those kind of uh, easier uh, two-point baskets around the rim that probably would have made the difference in that game. Um, but it, they still had enough that they, I mean, clearly they had, what, what was it, a 14-point lead at one point? Um, they, they clearly had enough to win. It was just it was not to be, Matt. That, that Georgia transition game, as you pointed out, was, uh, was deadly. Yeah, the and it felt like they were trying to strike that tenuous balance all night. They, by, you know, by circumstance, they had to play smaller, um, and those lineups can be optimized at times if you have Parker and Mitch on the floor to play in transition a bit. But you can't do it so much that you get to the tempo and kind of the the flow that Georgia wants it to be at. And I thought in the first half, um, they weren't running really good offense they were settling for jumpers early and i thought kobe brown who's had a productive three stretches was really important in the first half because he was producing offense in ways that let missouri get back and set its defense you know he was 
know, driving from the elbow or driving on, you know, Tamani Kamara. They were getting some post opportunities. You know, there were some second chance points he was getting. And those buckets were how he was producing the offense was just about as important as the points themselves because he was getting Missouri an opportunity to get back set up. And they were really able to do that in the first five or six minutes of the second half. They were able to produce enough out of the half court that, you know, Georgia was having to come down and they're just not equipped to really operate in that space. Kamara is a, you know, a long kind of lean, you know, athletic guy, but he's not a guy you can really post and, you know, they can't, you know, really exploit Missouri's lack of size in the block because Kamara wants to play on the perimeter and away from, and away from the paint. Um, but as we, as you kind of pointed out in say Hall and I did on Twitter, they started hoisting up jump shots, those long rebounds. I think George is like 10th or, or 20th in the country going into that game for initial shot attempts within 10 seconds of a rebound. Like a third of their shots come within 10 seconds of a defensive rebound. They get out and they push, and a lot of those misses are long, so you're automatically like starting your transition defense behind the ball mm-hmm. and you're having to sprint back and people were talking about they were doing a horrible job contesting threes well they weren't contesting threes because they were doing what you're taught to do in transition defense somebody sprints back to the restricted area you build a wall you try and force the ball to one side of the floor georgia took advantage and hit two corner threes and then they had justin Kyer, who was a trail shooter into the slot Missouri was doing what it's trained to do in transition defense and get back and protect the rim. And given how Georgia shot only 30% coming into the game, if you get back, protect the paint, stop the ball, you probably normally feel okay about Georgia launching a three-pointer off early clock. Mm -hmm. But they went four of four. (laughs) And, you know, that to me was sort of indicative of how the night was going. Missouri, you know, didn't run good offense. It tried to triage. And then just a team made shots. The bigger issue, I think, was when they had an opportunity to cut it. I think you pointed it out. They cut it, or they tied it at 16-62. And then they had turnovers. And that, those, to me, were the were the issues there. You know, Xavier Pinson had an okay floor game. And then down the stretch, you know, he and Drew Smith just did not do a good job valuing the ball. That let the transition game get going again for Georgia. And they just were able to ride that to a win. So... Ultimately, they just didn't have a sustainable, you know, balance in that ball game, and you know it, it came back to bite them. When and we've always talked about how Missouri's high variance, and you know when it goes wrong, it goes wrong really quickly. So yeah, um, the the forensics of that game, if you like, calm them down and like looked at them, made total sense. Not any less infuriating, but they make sense. So when you go back and, and you look at kind of the segments that mattered in that game. Well, so it's one of these things where I think we've kind of seen the thing that has sustained Missouri for much of the year is even on nights where like one or two guys aren't playing well, they get a really good performance, uh, usually from Drew Smith, um, or a terrific performance from Xavier Penson. Just they get like one of these guys to, um, and you know, I think I've I've always kind of looked at like that foursome of 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 Pinson, Drew, Mark, and and Tillman, and those four 
as long as Missouri has two of those guys have a good night, then they're in good shape because they've got enough workable parts where you can get baskets from Kobe, you can get baskets, you know, from you know Mitchell Smith can hit a three, you know, Javon Pickett is uh, is capable of, of you know kind of getting six or eight points that you don't expect, and maybe Torrance Watson comes in and hits a three, like like they have enough if they just get two of those four guys to perform. So without Jeremiah Tillman, uh, now you you are, instead of only needing half of your top four, now you need, you know, two of the three. And only Mark Smith had a good night, and he was in foul trouble. Yeah. You need one of the ball handlers to have a good night, and you usually would hope Tillman has a good night. And then it really is, is Mark Smith having a good shooting performance, or is Pinson getting downhill and drawing fouls? That's really the formula for how they make things work. And then maybe the bench spackles together something enough to help. You know, Brown gets a couple elbow drives, picket back cuts, gets on the glass and does something. Like, that. that's the formula for them. And the other issue that they run into is, even if Tillman's not scoring the ball, the attention and the way he forces a defense to collapse and the way the help side has to account for him as a roller, you know, creates shots. It creates seams for Pickett. I mean, not for Pickett, but it hits seam, great seams for Pinson to drive. Mm-hmm. If that help defender has to scramble back out to Pickett and doesn't close out short, Pickett can drive the baseline. Just the movement that Tillman provides you in the half court is so important. And without that, life just gets really, really hard. Yeah, so basically that ended up kind of being... You know, Parker, you know, when you look at, like, the trifecta, Parker and Kobe and, you know, Mark, who played 26 minutes and only had 11 points, um, you know, X and Drew combined to shoot uh, two for 12 from three-point range. Um, They combined for eight turnovers. That, to me, was the deadly number for them. Yeah. but, you know, and it's just like one of these things where I think you have like the, sort of the combination of everything. And everyone's like, oh, like it's 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 a bad loss. Like, yeah, I mean, but like when you're when you remove Jeremiah Tillman from the lineup and you have your your two, you know, rely, you know, guy, and I realize reliable is probably not the best word to associate with Xavier Pinson, uh, you know, but if Drew Smith is simply like, you know, yeah, like if he has one turnover and. And he's two of five from three. Um, then I think you're you're like it, it changes the uh, you know the lines of the game during the game, uh, and 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 makes that you know m- maybe it makes the finish a little bit more uh, or less competitive. Uh, you know, it ended up being uh, you know a ten point win, but it's one of those things like you know the the timing of things and where they happen. Uh, you know, if 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 Drew Smith is is able to like not turn it over at one point or to you know hit a three at one point and extends the lead further or or you know sort of puts Missouri back in control then it, it changes the way that the game finishes um, and they just they they didn't didn't happen so they get Jeremiah Tillman back and they go on the road again to South Carolina and a team that that I think you and I both think is is dangerous because of how they play and if if they can kind of get 
um, get their their scoring mode going. Like, I mean, they're a team that they still scored uh, almost 50 points on Missouri in the second half. Like, uh, they're a very capable offensive team. They just seem to be rather disinterested in defending this year, which is kind of surprising for a Frank Martin team. I thought... Jimmy Dykes pointed out early, and I had watched South Carolina, and I had wondered if Frank had changed it, but Jimmy confirmed it. I had wondered if they'd gone to more of a, a gapping scheme and a little bit more pack line rather than getting out and sort of trying to you know, play heavy denial and force turnovers and stuff like that. I think the hard part for them is that it makes them so passive and reactive on defense that you know they were, they were junking it up a little bit um, trying to clog the middle. Missouri wasn't running some more straightforward sets. They were just ball screening and trying to get into gaps and, and make stuff happen. I think the issue for Missouri was when they were turning the ball over early in the second half or they were, you know, taking bad shots or, you know, not corralling, you know, long rebounds, Carolina was able to get in transition and they were able to, you know, make some plays. I thought as soon as Missouri tightened up its its grip on the ball, started getting some opportunities and started attacking in transition, got to the line. You know, we saw it in the first game. Carolina, you know, didn't value the ball enough. They, you know, they weren't able to stay consistently locked in defensively. Missouri built a, you know, 13 to 17 point lead. Carolina would whittle it down. Missouri would extend it again. And kind of the same thing happened in this one. Um, Carolina came out in the second half. They got it down to eight or nine. And then just couldn't string together enough stops. Oh, it was seven, enough... Matt. It was seven. Point being, they <laughs> they managed to trim the lead down, and you know, that seven point lead like had like Mizzou fans just in a panic at that point because I think that was you know like the fifth straight game where it was just this really uncomfortable five minute stretch out of the locker room. Yeah, just like oh man, it's gonna happen again. It's gonna happen again, and and. Uh, you know, like, yeah, I, I mean, this is – so I've always sort of thought, like, we were going to see a lot of weird outcomes this year. Um, and I think that even college basketball in, in general has even surprised me as far as, uh, you know, the half-by-half the half outcomes that we've seen. Um, you know, and it's not just Missouri. If you If you look around – uh, college basketball there there this is happening all over college basketball where these enormous runs um you know are, are are happening from one half to the next um so you know the, maybe the uh alabama 21 to 2 run in the second half against missouri was might be on the extreme but it's not that much of an extreme when you kind of look around the rest of the country so you know, it's it's funny to me that everyone's just like, "Oh, what's happening with with Mizzou? What's happening with Mizzou?" Is like, well, it's it, it's happening everywhere, and it's a weird year. Uh, and how you kind of weather the weirdness, uh, I think, is is where you kind of put yourself in position. And I think that's one of the reasons why Missouri has uh, has been able to have success is, is they've weathered uh, so much of the weirdness and. And not all of it, very clearly, but a lot of it. I also, you know, I wrote about this last week. I always thought that they would regress back to the 6-7 line. 
how it happened necessarily wasn't what I expected, but you know, guys get nicked up during the year. There are outcomes that, you know, you don't necessarily expect to see unfold. You know, if you told me in the preseason that they would have lost at in Starkville, I would have said, sure. I mean, I, I mean, I, that was a game I had pegged as a loss. Did I think it would happen in the manner it did? No, but that was one you could see Missouri struggling with. Um, the loss against Arkansas made total sense, given the lack of Tillman. The loss to Georgia makes sense, given that, you know, injuries or, you know, sometimes player situations arise. That's what happened with Jeremiah. And so that just took him out of the mix. All this stuff has happened in the wash. I think what's particularly galling, again, and we've talked about this a lot, is just the margins by which it's happened. You know, Missouri, when it when it loses ball games, is playing at something like equivalent to 190th in the country. I haven't updated that stat in a week, but it was when they've lost games, they the how Missouri's gone about it has not been particularly close. They haven't played like a top 100 team that's just having an off night. There have been you no know, collapses like that. But then to your point, like you look at a team like Wisconsin. When things go bad for Wisconsin, they go bad. And what happened to them when they had Michigan coming? They were up, I think, 12. Michigan flipped that result on them. You look at a team like Virginia. Virginia, we've seen this not just this year, but in prior years. When Virginia's style is not working or when it's short circuits, they just get blown. They get their doors blown off. Mm-hmm. And what I've tended to notice is that, and if you look at it and you try and correlate it a little bit, teams that are more defensive-minded and typically want to try and play at a more moderate pace get into these binds because they're built to defend, they're built to win at the margins, and when they get into a hole, they're not optimized to dig out. And so I think that's what happens to Missouri. They are, you know, we've talked about the pace has picked up for sure, and they've definitely, you know, retooled the offense, but when Missouri plays well, it's when they're locked in defensively, they're rebounding well, and they're valuing the basketball. And they have to build their transition offense off those things. They have to collect misses. They have to come down. They have to be able to attack early in the clock. So for Missouri, it starts on the defensive end. In a lot of ways, your pace is dictated by how you play defensively. And Missouri is still like willing to have long possessions play out. So Missouri stylistically has made some tweaks, but I think fundamentally their persona is kind of the same. And at times when that doesn't work, it really doesn't work. And the question was, you know, how much weirdness we'd see. And, you know, in aggregate, you know, I, I think they're about where I thought they'd be. Even if when it's happened, it's it's been at the extremes. Yeah. So they beat South Carolina. All is right with the world. Uh, as I even said in study hall, like this – it really was like an all is right with the world kind of box score. Um, Drew Smith was good. Pinson was good. Uh, you know, Tillman was obviously terrific. Um, Mark Smith is starting to look like we expect Mark Smith to play, uh, which is which is a really really good sign. Um, really, everybody. Uh, I think you kind of pointed out like. You know, Javon Pickett had a little bit of a rough game. Um, you know, I, I I put a lot of you know Pickett struggles um, more on his ankle at this point. I just don't think he's. I mean, he's a guy that we've sort of talked about as as. I mean, he's not an elite 
an elite athlete. Um, he's a guy who's kind of known as, as a hard worker, and he's gonna he's gonna play as hard as he has to play, um, which works when you're healthy. Uh, but if you limit your mobility even more, um, you know, then it's it's gonna affect him. Um, you know, but I think if Missouri is able to kind of string along, um, you know, some more success here at the end of the season, obviously we're going to get to a little bit of Ole Miss here in a second. Uh, but if they're, if they're able to kind of turn this win into, you know, consecutive or three wins in a row, um, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a little bit more consistent play from the four guys they need. And you're going to see a bump, uh, which, what, which is what we've seen from Kobe, uh, Kobe Brown has been a little bit more aggressive. Uh, his offensive rating took a little bit of a hit because um, he got a little sloppy with the ball in the beginning of the second half. Um, I think Kobe Brown is probably one of the guys who is a little bit responsible for letting South Carolina get right back in the game. Um, some jumpers and some turnovers, man. Yeah, like you know, it, it happens. Um, but I, I think the the response that they had. Uh, and, and some of the things that the guys have said about, you know, having like a players only meeting and stuff like that are, are all the kind of things that you want to hear about a team that sort of realizes that it wasn't playing at its best and what they have to do to kind of get there. Cause no one's ever going to confuse Missouri for, for being one of the 10 most talented teams in the country. Um, but I do think that they have enough, uh, to, uh, to get where they want to go, which, you know, to me, I think is, is you know, playing in the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. Um, so some of that may, may, might depend on matchups, but uh, the first step towards that, obviously, is is this upcoming uh, revenge game against uh, Ole Miss. So since Missouri went to Oxford and got blitzed um, by the... Ole Miss Rebels. Um, really, Ole Miss is a team that, at like, that was kind of in the middle of their hot streak. You know, they had um, come down, uh, they had come back from a, a, a second half deficit against Tennessee uh, at home and, and beaten, you know, Tennessee. Uh, then they had gone to Auburn and had a, a, a big win in overtime uh, against Auburn. Uh, and then they kind of traded barbs in the first half of Missouri and blew the doors off Mizzou. And then they went on the road to South Carolina and, and beat them. Uh, subsequently, they, they uh, had a week off. I'm guessing they were supposed to play Texas A&M. Everybody seems to be getting a break there. Uh, and, and came back home and lost in really ugly fashion uh, to Mississippi State. So this is like where I think like part of my skepticism coming into the year for Ole Miss was about offensive consistency. Um, and through the uh, the hot streak that we saw um, where they, they won four in a row, you saw Devontae Shuler, who is a guy who I think we've always liked his skill set and his ability to sort of create offense. And, and, through SEC play, he's he's been pretty consistent. I mean, he started out pretty ugly, uh, seven points against Auburn, two points against LSU. Then he goes for 19, 24, 22, 17, 19. Like, he goes in this run, and then against uh, Tennessee, he had 15, 
Auburn, he had 26. Missouri had 15. South Carolina, he had 31. Uh, and and <laughs> the Bulldogs come into Oxford. And, and Devontae Schuler had just four points on one of 15 shooting. Um, and I think... Not an efficient... Not an efficient day for Jordan no. Joiner either. No, it was like those those two are not the paragons of efficiency. Like you you need like Romano White's like a guy who's like your twelve and eight guy, but really what Schuler and Joiner do kind of drives the bus for them. That's that's if those guys are playing well, then it's a it's gonna be a good night. But um states and Olmus is now in a position where there's some stakes for them down the stretch. They've they've kind of played their way into that next, you know, four out territory. They've got Missouri, a road win of bona fide quad one shot for them, and then they have Kentucky coming in. Um, we'll see where Kentucky is in the net rating and what that means for them. But if Kentucky's not a quad one game, this is their last chance to grab a a quality win before going to nashville um if if missouri wins um tomorrow night so this is monday they play on tuesday if missouri wins that game i think it's it locks them in it well it's it locks missouri in but i think it might lock ole miss out uh at that point ole miss would be barring a miracle and barring a miracle in nashville yeah yeah um yeah i'm Still not entirely convinced they're going to have that tournament, but, um, but that would, yeah, that would put them at seven and eight, um, with really two good wins that were both at home. Yeah, they'd have two quad one wins. Yeah, against Tennessee and Missouri, and their non-con, which again that's built in to like they're built into the net rating and like Ken Palm. So when people say, look at their schedule, it's it's already accounted for in the rating. The non-conference schedule is 295, so there's just nothing on the non-con resume that they can point to. Um, their hope was probably that maybe Auburn under Cooper would play itself into a, into a really, really nice win. Um, but I'm not sure if that's going to be the case. So if you're really looking up and down the resume, it's Auburn. It's a sweep of Auburn, a win over Tennessee, and a win over Missouri. I'm just not sure there's a lot with a left with being swept by Georgia. Yeah. And taking a, a loss to Mississippi state at home. So just not a lot there. And no real, like really... terrible losses. I mean, like Dayton, which, the, the which committee doesn't, state. I, I always thought that people like, look at like, it has to be an egregious loss. Once you get into sec play, very rarely are you going to have like a quad three loss. Mm-hmm. The real th- hindrance for Ole Miss is that the SEC is what the third or fourth best power conference third last I checked but you don't have unlike the Big Ten or the Big 12 you don't have a lot of self-reinforcing wins where you can get 10 12 quad one win opportunities Missouri's gonna have 12 for the year and probably like six or seven in SEC play Mm -hmm. you have to if you don't aggressively schedule out of non-con play in a year like this you have to maximize your quad one win opportunities and i'm just not sure that they've done that enough at this point like i think they'll point to two or three potential quad one wins but the committee's gonna say "Eh?" there's not just a lot there on the resume and if you really dig into the metrics there 
like in net, they're not going to be a team that I think you're going to put in there. So tomorrow for them, this is a long way of us saying tomorrow feels like a, a last stand for them in a lot of ways uh, to try and get into the tournament picture. And for them, SEC seeding really matters. Where they get and the path they have is going to loom large because they're going to need a couple of quad one win chances, assuming we go to Nashville. Yeah. But for Missouri, I said this earlier today on the Twitters, I feel like a win tomorrow locks them in. I, I just, even if they lose the next two, you know, to have six quad one wins, you know, a sweep by Ole Miss won't be helpful, but there's, I just don't think there's enough bad losses left. There's not an opportunity for them to go on the kind of deep slide that's going to knock them out of the field. If you've got five or six quad one wins in this season, you're going to have a seed. The The real job now is maintenance. At worst, get, you know, hold them a mid-six seed and try and push your way to like 18th or 19th on, on the seed list. And that's about a mid-five seed. Yeah. That, that, that's the work for them. And I'm, I think I'm even more positive than you are. Like, I, I think that the win at South Carolina locked them in the field. Um, now, if they lost out, I think the, you know, the seed would be ugly. <laughs> uh, but I, like, I don't, I don't think that they're in danger once they beat South Carolina of, of falling out of the tournament. Um, I do think that there's still things that Missouri can be playing for, uh, you know, because, and we were kind of talking beforehand, like where they are in the SEC tournament, you know, seed list, what that would mean as far as matchups. Um, I am always of the opinion that you get the highest seed you can get, uh, win the game in front of you and worry about the, you know, the next game later. Um, I, I just tend to think that, you know, and maybe this is, um, this is a little bit of the, you know, the, the coach, um, you know, coming out, but you, you can only control what you can control and what you can control is your performance on that day. Um, so if Missouri comes out and, um, you know, and loses to Ole Miss, uh, it's obviously not what you, you want, but I, I don't think that necessarily puts them in a position where it's like, oh shit, they need to, you know, they need, they really need a win in Gainesville. Um, I think what you want to do is you want to, you want to beat Ole Miss because one, they, you know, handed you your ass. Uh, yeah. Like in, in 20 minutes of basketball, they made you look terrible. So you, you want revenge for that. Um, you want to solidify like your place in the SEC race, uh, and then you want to set yourself up for you know whatever happens with Texas A and M. I'm not convinced that they're going to play that game, um, you know. But I, I think it sets you up to kind of finish in a way that that you're going to feel good going into the SEC tournament if it's played, and then going into the NCAA tournament. Um, but you know, like first and foremost, you want to beat Ole Miss because, like, that's an important game. Yeah, there are about ten games over the next week that I think are going to loom pretty large in seeding implications. Missouri's playing in two of them. One's tomorrow night against Ole Miss, and then obviously the trip to Florida. But 
I think I told you before we came on air, it, it could be a circular firing squad in front of them. You know, I, Florida has to go to Auburn tomorrow night as well. Alabama has to go to Arkansas. Tennessee's going to Auburn. LSU's going to Arkansas. Florida's got to go to Kentucky, and they can, and then Kentucky's going to Ole Miss. Like for Missouri, if you are just objectively looking at their schedule, if things go badly in front of them for Florida, and probably more for LSU or for Arkansas, I should say, because Arkansas has got two really tough games against LSU and Al and Alabama here. I, I just there's an opportunity where if Missouri goes three and zero, that it could push itself into that three four seed discussion and that's a point where that win over alabama really matters a lot they'd be the only team that right now is holding that chip so if you get into a weird three-way tie and the tiebreaker becomes you know who's got a win over the top seed missouri's the only one holding that card so to your point winning more basketball games only does only opens up more possibilities for them um right now kim palm has missouri has the outcome projected to Missouri finishing 9-7 and seven. if you look at all the other outcomes and tiebreakers, which I did, which gave me a headache. Uh, if Kim Palm is 100% accurate, again, caveat, that's not probably not going to happen. Uh, Missouri's on track for a 5 seed, for the number 5 seed uh, in Nashville. So, you know, get a win over Florida. Maybe you start to push yourself into the mix for the, for the number 4 spot. But at this point, you know, there's so many games in front of them, and there's about eight or nine games in front of them that are going to impact them that all that matters now is just get wins. And at worst, you'll shore up your spot at the, as a number six seed. So that's all that really matters is it, in Nashville as a number six seed. NCAA tournament, I don't even want to think about that. There's too many permutations happening there. Um, but they're solidly on the sixth line right now. Um, I don't think there's any way they'd fall you know, lower than a nine at this point. So it's, it's all, maybe there's a little bit, we talked about this last week, maybe the ceiling is a little bit lower, but you know, yeah, I don't, for like, right I don't now, know, I don't know that it's necessarily possible for them, even if they, they win out, um, you know, barring some unbelievable run in, in Nashville, for them to get back to the four line. Yeah. I don't, I just don't think that's, that's possible at this point. Um, but I think you could, you could very easily just work yourself onto that five line by, you know, beating Ole Miss and, your business. And, and beating Florida. Um, that Florida game, I think, is an important game. Um, you know, and and again, like I don't, I really don't think they're going to be playing on Saturday against Texas A and M. It it would seem really weird for Texas A and M after being on pause for this point and having to isolate and do all these things to play this Saturday. Um, I don't know necessarily if there would be a way for Missouri to make up. Um, you know any other games on Saturday, and I don't necessarily think that would be a bad thing. Um, no, Vanderbilt's Vanderbilt's got a game against Ole Miss on Saturday, and LSU is uh, facing Arkansas. Yeah, so those I mean those are all games that that need to happen. Um, and and so if the worst thing that happens is Texas A&M has to cancel the game, Missouri's probably going to you know forego uh, a very likely win. Um, and then they just get to rest up and 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 plan for Florida. Like, that's not that bad of a deal. Um, because I no. I think like of of if you could uh I, and clearly like 
I know Missouri wants to beat Ole Miss. I, that win in in Gainesville is a more attractive win. Yeah, it gets you to seven quad one wins. Yeah, like it, you're not getting left out of the field with seven quad one wins, and it's just they're not getting left out of the field. I think at all, but at seven, where's all where's you, all Miss in in the net right now? Uh, I can look that up. It's starting to track closer to finally starting to track closer to KP. Um, so I'd assume they're probably in the upper fifties. Because this point, for, for it to be a quad one home win they they'd have, have to be top 30 they have to be top 30 and they're not top 30 no they are not uh so it'll be a it's a quad two win if they get it yeah uh Ole miss right now is but a quad one win they're on sitting the at 60 seconds top 75 right yeah so florida's always that's since the start of the preseason that's been a quad one win an opportunity that's been out there for a while Ole miss right now is a quad two um I think A and M A and M's close to being a quad three, like A and M. There's all downside risk to that A and M game. Um, so if you lose, the committee's not going to be like, "Oh darn, you didn't play that quad three conference game." I really don't know how to evaluate this resume. Yeah. Uh, so there's no downside, and I said this before, and I'm sure Buzz Williams would would scream at me. I'm not sure for Texas A and M, it's not the worst thing if they don't play. Um, if you're going through as many isolations and cancellations as they have, and you know Frank, they talked about it a little bit on the broadcast for South Carolina, and I, we've seen it here in Indy with Butler. Like when you go on pause as often as this happens, you just there's no rhythm. Your guys need to work back into condition just to practice, just to get into the routine of it. Like, and we already know from some surveys that mental health issues have been really, really taxing for kids trying to play this year in, in college athletics. So like if you're Texas A&M and you've missed, you're on track to miss eight conference games, you've had to go in and out of pause. You haven't been able to get a real consistent run of practice. You haven't been able to, you know, see your family all that much. Like again, kids are going to want to play. You know, I have no doubt that there's a commitment there, but would it be the worst thing if, for them to just, say, okay, we're going to go into Nashville. Our focus is going to be on getting our conditioning back, on getting guys healthy, and, you know, functionally, you know, our seed's not going to change here if we play two games as we can even make up to. Let's, our, our focus should just be on being healthy and being, you know, somewhat in fighting shape for Nashville. So I don't know if it's the worst thing in the world if Texas A&M misses it because I think they're at the point now where, the disruptions have been so frequent and to such a degree that it's probably better if you put the focus on just getting to Nashville and trying to put together a couple competent uh, performances there and go into the off season, you know, with some sort of, uh, of good feeling. So, well, the, the, you know, the, the flip side of that, that's why coaches are probably yelling at me for even suggesting <laughs> that. But you know, the, the, the flip side of that also is, is uh, flip side is probably the wrong, wrong sort of term for it. Uh, you know, but Texas A&M has two games left on on their schedule. So there's their Saturday uh, against Missouri, and then their Wednesday at home against Mississippi State. So Missouri is already a team that came into your house and beat you by 16 points, and the game wasn't particularly close for most of the second half. 
Uh, Mississippi State is a team that you went into their building and you lost, but by a point. Uh, or sorry, they they beat Mississippi State by a point. So if it like if you have a chance to come back and and your guys are a little out of shape and you want to kind of build up some time, like I don't even know that you need to wait till Nashville. I would not play that Missouri game. <laughs> I just say we're gonna we're gonna forego that game. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna face Mississippi State Mississippi State at home because I think that that's a game that they feel they can they can win, um, and it, like that would be a good sort of uh, momentum builder you know for for Texas A and M you know to be able to come back and and win a game at home a game that they're more likely to win uh, and take that into the SEC tournament versus uh, versus traveling to to Columbia and and facing a, a top twenty five team who already handled you very very easily um you know and i i know texas a&m is is a is a team that can be pretty difficult to play but th- this this year like it's not a it's not a team that would scare me if they're coming off pause and coming to columbia like i i would expect missouri to win that by at least 15 yeah or at least for it to be a comfortable working margin i i think we're just at the point where we we have to start like asking about like what's the margin well, like what's the return here like and are we at a diminishing margin of return now for someone like a&m where and even if they're not healthy like are you going to have guys that are in condition are you going to have guys that are ready to play are you going to heighten injury risk for guys coming off i mean and there's just a lot of variables that we can't account for and at this point i think my hope would just be to have a healthy and locked in group one that's completely you know that's strung together a couple weeks of you know covid free operations and is going to come to nashville rested feeling like it's got a rhythm practice wise maybe they've played that mississippi state game like you said and and they feel pretty engaged but um at this point like everyone north of eighth in the conference, like everyone, like if you look at Kentucky, Ole Miss, Tennessee, Missouri, Florida, LSU, Arkansas, Alabama, those are the teams that are, that are playing with some stakes attached. Um, Auburn's taking itself out with the postseason ban. Mississippi state's not going to be in the NCAA tournament mix. Neither is Georgia. And obviously AIM, Carolina and Vanderbilt are out. So I just feel like at this point, half the league is, is fighting and scrapping for position, but, even then you could feel good about six teams being in the field at this point. It just, it feels like we're at the point now where half the league is just trying to do what it can to get in position to shore up its seed line and be able to go to the indie bubble and, and try and make their best play their best basketball at this point. Yeah. So, um, and the only, like if we're going to talk about making up games, I think there's only really even only three that if I was the SEC, I would want to try and get in. And that's LSU at Missouri, Florida at LSU, and Florida at Tennessee. Maybe that those have some bearing on the seeding issues. But outside of that, it's a lot of Texas A&M games. I don't know how you decide which A&M games you're going to make up. Carolina's missing three games. Um, Vanderbilt's missing three games. Outside of that, it's usually just one or two. So to me, I think at this point, you just try and put as much of a lid on the A&M season as you can and try and get to Nashville, assuming we go, we, we go that route still and just try and, you know, position everyone to do well in March. It is very possible that, you know, they, you know, with uh, LSU, uh, 
who's LSU playing on Saturday? Arkansas. That's what I thought. Yeah. So they're they're at Arkansas. They could just be like, hey, uh, LSU, you want to go play Missouri on Thursday and Arkansas on Saturday, just to get the game in. That that would be that would be brutal. Um, like the SEC is already like a really really tough league to um, to to make it through the entire season. Like it it, it really it's a it's a difficult league for for them at the end of the year to be potentially adding additional games um at like it's i really think that it, the only way that they need to make up games is if they're going to cancel the tournament now we talked about this last week but it's just like i just i really don't want to see like as an example let's say that the sec says oh like you know uh, LSU LSU is going to play at Georgia on Tuesday. Uh, they're going to play at Missouri on Thursday. <laughs> they're going to play at Arkansas on Saturday. Uh, and then let's say in the first half, like against Missouri, like Trenton Watford goes down with an ankle injury. Like he's pretty important to what LSU does or Cam Thomas. Javante Smart, like if any of those guys get hurt, you know, because they're having to play, uh, you know, here's Cam Thomas, who's currently at 79.8% of minutes. Trenton Watford is 80.1. Javante Smart is 81.9. Those guys play a lot. So, you know, and I am, I am not a guy who is ever going to throw a pity party for LSU because I think people at this point know how I feel about Will Wade and and uh, his his cheating ass. Um, but it would suck even for someone like Florida. Imagine you're Florida and you've come out of playing at Missouri, and now it's like, oh, cool! You, you've got to try and find a way in the next seven days for the SEC tournament to make up a trip to LSU in Tennessee. Congrats! Yeah, <laughs> like I. That's the hard part. And even if you're Tennessee, if you're Tennessee, you've gone to Auburn in that stretch as well. Like, it's... If you're going to do it, I think you're, you're going to have to pick games or one game that you're going to want to try and get made up in that week stretch. But then you're going to be picking and choosing which teams are playing. and So I, I agree. It's either you're, you're going to try and do makeups or you're just going to say we, we're happy that you know, 11 of 14 teams were able to play 16 to 18 games. We're able to see the field pretty accurately and go with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would still prefer. And honestly, we're at the point now where I could make a case for either. Um, I think you just have to chuck A&M at this point in either scenario. There's just, but I think if you're going to do it, given where A&M is, I can see, I just, I don't think they should be letting fans in the building, but if you're going to do the tournament, I, I get it because there's just no conceivable way. Like, how do you equitably decide which teams are going to play A&M or which teams are going to get wind up playing lower seeded games? So it, I don't know if there's an equitable way to really schedule games in a way that resolves the top half effectively. So if you feel like you're, you've played enough, just give teams a week, give A&M a week to try and, 
ensure it's safely off pause and go to Nashville. I, I can see an argument for either. Um, so I, I think my position softened a little bit since last week. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm completely fine if they just want to just call a little bit. Um, so yeah, so it'll be an interesting week. I'm, I'm guessing that uh, after Ole Miss, uh, they're not going to have a game on Saturday, and we'll be back uh, early next week talking about the trip to Florida with uh, only one game having been played. Um, you want to talk about the, uh, the, the the Conzo rumor at all? I mean, <laughs> you want to give it any credence? Uh, I mean, like, it was out there on Twitter, you know, like, Rock'em Nation. <laughs> because, as we've tag. seen, social media does a fantastic job of accurately vetting um, all content and all uh, reporting that happens on their platforms. So, uh, for a while, through the Rock'em Nation account, I've followed an account called Coaching Changes, which... Uh, is a somewhat irritating account at times but you know like once it gets down to like you know the the coaching change season it's actually a decent account to follow they they seem to get pretty uh consistent reliable intel uh that is not the account that uh tagged rockham nation in a tweet along with uh at the state of the u at canes insight at canes sport at manny underscore navarro at david Ferronis at Barstool U Miami, at Kane's Fam News, Rock'em Nation, Dave Matter, Power Mizzoucom, Barstool Mizzou, and by Eric Blum. Uh, trying to get as many of those uh, Mizzou and, and Miami tags as possible. Uh, at Rumors Coach said, if Jordan Laranega calls it a career, Conza Martin will be Miami's target, and we expect mutual interest. So that was the tweet. Matt, uh, I one. I I don't know what leverage you would feel. Like if you're Jim Sterk in that situation, like you and I both did think Conzo Martin is a fantastic person, the kind of person you want leading your program. So I I, I want to set that aside. This isn't about the person because I think clearly. Martin's the kind of caliber person we all want in the job. Um, But if you're evaluating it from just an on-court results perspective, you'll have two tournament bids in four years, and and that you're in a healthier position now than you were when the job opened in 2017. The roster is at a point where it's turning over a bit. You'd obviously have to release some guys if, like, Martin left and you had to let guys at LOIs. But the rosters turned a bit, so a guy coming in could do his own kind of you know renovation on that. But I guess the program's at kind of a natural point where if, say, Conzo did want to take that job, Missouri's in a better place than it was. A coach could come in and relatively kind of reshape the roster in a way that he wants. you know. And also, I think Conzo has done a good job, to a certain extent, rehabilitating the program. You know, We've talked about recruiting may not have been what you know, some people thought, I, I think you can lodge some critiques there with recruiting, but like what leverage is there 
for Jim Sterk to say, yes, I feel the urge to up the contract here. I just don't know if the Miami job is one where you pound the table and say, we've got to lock the deal in with Conzo. We can't have this happen. I think Missouri's in a better enough place now that it could go into the coaching market and and sell someone on an opportunity here. I think I think it's in that sort of position. Now, the question for Conzo is... I just want to make a point here. Noted uh, um, Jim Sterk lover here, Matt Harris, is... Uh, is thinking it would be the worst thing if Missouri was was. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, like Sturk's not in a position where I think he's going to feel like he's he's married to the decision one way or the other. So you, I mean, you're you're basically making the argument that like if Conso was trying to use this as leverage, that you think Sturk should call his bluff. Yeah. Like I like I think that we should just be kind of clear in in the language that you're presenting. Here. Yeah. Like neither of us actually believes uh, that there is at all an, a chance that Conzo leaves Mizzou this off season for the Miami job. Um, no. I don't necessarily. Because why would think... you take the Miami? Because like, where's the Miami job? Like, it's a lateral move, and I like you're going into objectively a harder basketball conference at a school that Jim Leonard has done a good job there. But where would you put Miami? seventh eighth ninth in the pecking order in that league lower like it just what it's a harder job <laughs> than what he has right now it it does have a better proximity to uh the beach um <laughs> which i think is the as somebody who um i'm not a huge florida uh person I don't like. I like going to visit my my friend down there. I like going to the beach, but the sort of culture of Florida is not not what speaks to me or or my soul. Um, I just like it's not a job that I think is an attractive one because the fan interest, even in good years, is tepid. Like Mizzou has its own issues with 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 fan and and uh, attendance and all that kind of stuff. But if Mizzou is good, people show up. If Miami's good, sometimes people show up. Yeah, like, and, you know, and Miami is, obviously, I, I do think that Mizzou, like, one of the issues that, that holds uh, Mizzou back a little bit is um, is the, the pro sports leagues on either side of the state. So you have, uh, you have professional baseball, uh, hockey, football, um, you know, all very popular um, in Kansas City and St. Louis. So it's it's a tougher draw, uh, but that that's still you have your own community in Columbia that you can always kind of draw people from. You have uh, a state university with thousands and thousands of students who can who can also kind of show up to games. Uh, but that's not the situation in Miami. Like Miami has has all those sports leagues. Um, it's a small private university that does not have a huge uh, group of fans looking to attend games, so it's it's a it's a, not a really desirable job. Um, if you look at spending between 2012 and 2019, Missouri is 49th in higher among higher majors. Miami is 50th. 
like the budget like a resource perspective they're the same now I, that, I, that's all I, here here's what i'll say like just to kind of cut to the chase a little bit i think that this uh the way the way that the tweet was worded i think it's a little full of shit there may be uh somebody in the athletic director's office in miami who said hey we love our coach we love jim we like what he's doing as long as he wants to be here we'll we'll keep him around cuz you know larnega's done a good job i mean they're down this year but he's done a good job um you know but if he wanted to call a career here are some of the guys that we would we would look at as potential targets um they they said something about they the they would expect the interest to be mutual i think that's a lot of horse shit excuse my language um because Conzo wanted to get back to the midwest he wanted to get back to where his family was from uh he was looking for jobs in the area you know like he he took he's been at a program like miami when he was at cal he was in a major (laughs) metro area where support was tepid the budget was tough it was hard to recruit in that sort of climate. He didn't. Have, there weren't a lot of real connections there. You'd just be going to this. You'd be taking on a similar job at Miami, and like I just looked, the, looked up, Miami's eleventh in spending over the last decade or so in the ACC. You're behind Duke, Louisville, Syracuse, Florida State. Pitt's been crap, but they've spent money. Virginia, North Carolina, like just a six of those teams right there you got to try and break in with that group then you got virginia tech which has made a, a pretty decent hire from of wofford's coach wake forest then you you're only ahead of georgia tech notre dame clemson and boston college it, it just doesn't make any sense like as a job makes no sense to take that job yeah. Harder league. So I, similar... I, I don't think this is a situation where like like Conzo is not using this as leverage because he's not interested in the job. Uh if if there were if there was another job that was a little bit more believable, like I don't, I don't know. Like I don't even know what would be more believable at this point, because obviously Matt Painter's not going anywhere. Well let's say you know Matt Painter gets hired away to the NBA. And Purdue's like, oh, let's go get Purdue alum Conzo Martin. I think that would present an opportunity for leverage for Conzo Martin. Yeah, but I don't think like I don't think Zoe is going to leave Mizzou for an equal or lesser job, um, unless it is going to put him in a position where he's because uh, I, I I do think that Purdue is in, unless the money is just insane. Yeah, and I just I mean I don't I really don't think anyone's gonna be throwing five or six million dollars at 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 Zoe after he's done a moderate rebuild of of Missouri. Yeah. Um. So all that said, I think the tweet is not believable. Uh, <laughs> if if it came from the coaching changes, then I might give it a little bit more levity, but. Uh, yeah, this one, I mean, I think they're also saying how Frank Martin is interested in, like, the New Mexico job, which also makes no sense. Like, I think Frank Martin is probably more interested in the Miami job than... Yeah, he, that's, that's what I was going to say. That's the Martin... Maybe they th- maybe they meant Frank Martin? Like, 
but, but they proceeded to tag all these Mizzou accounts. Like, did they get their guys fixed up? I don't know. Like, if like that's the job Frank Martin would want. He like the guy who's coached in Miami, who's from Miami. Like, just yeah, that's who you'd call. Is you'd call Frank Martin. Frank Martin might call them. So, yeah, it's like I haven't thought much about. I think if people are talking about our rooting or, you know, wanting to find some stock in it, I think it's also kind of tipping their hand to they want Conzo to move on much more so than the plausibility of the scenario itself. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's very clear at this point that, you know, there's a segment of uh, the fan base who will never be happy with Conzo Martin just the way that there was a segment of the fan base who was never happy with him at Tennessee. Um do I think that there might be some racial overtones to that? Yes. Uh, you know, but I think if you look at the landscape of college basketball and you look at where Missouri is right now, and even if they take a step back next year, which is really, there's no guarantee on that because we don't know what the finished roster is going to look like going into next year. Um, but even, like, if they do take a step back, like, he's he's put Missouri in the NCAA tournament two times in four years after the program endured its worst stretch in, in, nearly in its history and in, in certainly in modern history. Um, I think you have to go back to like, you know, pre Norm Stewart hire, uh, you know, where Missouri was, was as dreadful as they were um, under Commanderson. So when you put all that in context, and you also say that, okay, Missouri is not exactly outspending its peers. Um, you know, I, I'm of the mind that I would like to see, I would like to see this experiment play out. And I, I said this to you over, over text as we were sort of uh, going back and forth on this whole stupid rumor. Um, but I really would like to see, like, what a year nine of Conzo Martin at Missouri looks like because uh, I, I, I think that the potential right now is even with a setback next year the potential of a, a, a solid really solid 2022 recruiting class as using that as a building block to kind of take steps forward and him uh, acquiring the kind of talent that, that I think Missouri fans would largely want to see um, you know but also being able to sort of consistently be a, a top six or top eight, you know, program on most years. And I think uh, that's one of the things that we have to kind of keep in mind is, um, you know, it's not 1987 anymore and it's not 1994 anymore. Like the, the picture of what Missouri is as a program, uh, what the SEC is as a league, um, I think that fans need to get used to a little bit more variance, um, you know, and, and having years like uh, Bruce Pearl is having this year, like having years where you you thought you had that thing kind of humming and then, up oh, there's a setback because things didn't quite go your way that year. Um, but as long as you're consistently good, and I think that Konzo can, can do that, um, and I think that that sort of opens the door for some possibilities of, of getting a little bit more consistency on the top end. If there are two tournament bids in four years, last year it's a little bit harder to make the argument. Um, 
second year if they had had a healthy Jonte Porter and a healthy Mark Smith, I think that's an NCAA tournament team. Uh, again, we can debate hypotheticals, and we've done that a lot in the past, but say that happens and you've had a coach who's taken three of his first four teams into the NCAA tournament. No one's going to argue with the results of what that is. Um, I think last year it's a little bit harder to defend. I think that was just more indicative of where the roster was. But, you know, we also know next year, I mean, maybe they blow the transfer market out of the way. But you can, like, look at lineups as to what guys are going to be next year. Even if it's a reset, it's not a surprise what it is. I think the hardest thing right now that Missouri has to sort of accept is that they have to commit to something. They have to commit to a coach. They have to commit to a regime, and they have to see what happens with it. If a guy has taken you to two tournaments in four years, I'm not saying fans should you know, say, well, that's, that's life and we should accept it, but I think you have to look at that and say... Given where we were, given all that's unfolded, that's not the worst outcome. Let's go through and let's see what happens where maybe we bring in a class that we think has some really high ceiling guys. Let's see what happens now that we've had an opportunity to really focus on some guys in the 2022 class. Let's see where another, at minimum, two seasons look like here. Let's get this thing to almost the full life of the contract if you wanted to throw a one-year extension on there, I'd be fine with that. It, you know, depending, and that could reset the buyout terms. But I think that's that's reasonable. If you get to six or seven years, and you know, Conzo's taken them to three or four tournaments, and you know, especially if they start to put it together and they start to you know recruit at a pretty solid level, then I think what you've done is you haven't settled for mediocrity. You've said we're going to commit. We're going to put resources behind a coach. We're going to give him time. We're going to try and get off a treadmill, which I think that's what the Kim Anderson hire really brought them to was that point where they could either get on a treadmill or they could commit and really give a guy time to build a program. And, you know, I think it's instructive to go back and look at guys like Leonard Hamilton or go back and look at guys like Jay Bill or, you know, Jay Wright. You know, look at those guys in the first six to seven years they were at programs. They had some mixed, it was a mixed bag. I think you've got to commit and you've got to try and you've got an opportunity. Now, if we get to year six and or seven and there's only been two tournaments and Missouri's still stuck in, you know, eighth or ninth in the standings, then I think you go, yeah, we, we, we've given a guy time here. We need to try and reset. But it just seems weird to me that we're having a discussion about is Konza the right guy as he's about ready to take a team into the NCAA tournament. <laughs> they're, like I, they're, they've been top 25 for like, what, 11 weeks now? A top twenty-five program for eleven weeks, and there there are fans that are like, ah, they're unhappy, and it's like, I mean, okay, <laughs> I just don't, I don't like, I don't know what, I I really think that there are the people that are like that, that don't actually watch on a regular basis, don't actually pay attention to college basketball in general, don't know actual like histories of programs outside of maybe their own and are thinking that like it is just easy like maybe they're they're expecting uh i don't know like missouri to find chris beard but chris beard has a job you know like the the number of texas tech because that's where he got it that's where he broke in and he's got family there 
Right, like, and like that's the thing. Texas like, Tech was his dr- the number like, there were of variables elite, at play there. Well, I'm just kind of saying like the number of elite elite coaches that are going to step into a program and and flip it on day one is there's like four or five of them at at most. Everybody else, like, are you going to tell me that like if if you said that that Conza Martin was going to have a Leonard Hamilton trajectory that if we just gave it 15 years, we'd have what Florida state is, is back-to-back ACC champions uh, or looking like they're going to be a back-to-back ACC champions, a team that was like a favorite for the final four a year ago. Uh, he's recruiting at a high level. They're playing a fun style of basketball. They have like five guys that are scoring between like 10 and 13 points. Like, and you know what? Like they didn't make the tournament for like the first six years. Yeah, they didn't make the tournament for yeah his first six seasons. Then they were a five seed, went out in the first round. Nine seed, out in the first round. Ten seed, made the Sweet Sixteen. Three seed, out in the second round. So in the first decade of Leonard Hamilton's career, he went to four NCAA tournaments and only reached the second weekend once. Then went four straight years without making the dance and has now started to do this. Like, there's no guarantee Conzo's going to do that, but you you invest in a guy and you give him time, you can build a stable program. Yeah. So. Uh, so we'll be back next week. We're, we're like 15 minutes over here. Um, I just, I think... Anytime people uh, or anytime like stuff like this comes up, you and I can just sort of get on tangents and, and probably talk about how crazy it is. Um, but yeah, uh, apologize for the uh, the extra fifteen to twenty minutes <laughs> of weird kinds of rumors that aren't even true. Um, so we'll be back. Uh, Matt and I kind of anticipate there to be one. Uh, basketball game this week we will talk about Ole Miss uh, we will talk about um, A&M if it happens A&M if it happens Any, anything else that happens we'll talk about that uh, we will take a look at, at Florida and a potential of the upcoming SEC basketball tournament um, until then make sure you're subscribed you get all those hot new episodes uh, straight to your mobile phone uh, and we'll be back so thanks for tuning in